Hey there, folks. Welcome to the State Tax Show. This is Matt Hunsaker. The latest buzz on the street is the IRS notice that appears to bless pass-through entity tax workarounds for the $10,000 cap on deducting state and local taxes. Let's chat about that. Forsyth Park in Savannah, Georgia. Last week, my wife and I went to Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia for a few days. It was fun to look at all of the old buildings, practice my southern drawl, and learn about history. Not all of it pleasant, of course. History is one of the reasons why I really like to go to the East Coast. It just seems like it's been aged a bit more out there than here in the West. In fact, growing up in Alaska, history was measured in terms of whether it had happened before or after the 1964 earthquake. Not quite as exciting. Of course, then, when we go to Europe, and who knows if that will ever happen again, uh, we get an entirely new perspective on what it means for it to be really old history. Speaking of new history, the $10,000 state and local tax cap has been around for almost three full years now. I'm sure you're all pretty familiar with it, but let me set the stage for those of you who may not be. Before the TCGA, individuals could deduct their state and local taxes, and that's still the case after the TCGA, but now individuals can only deduct $10,000 of state and local taxes. Kind of a big deal for those who are living in the high-tax states. So states have toyed around with all sorts of ideas for ways to get around this $10,000 cap. You know, tax credits for donations to certain governmental entities, employer-side payroll taxes with a credit mechanism. But most importantly for our discussion today, Taxes on pass-through entities with owner credits or deductions. Seven states have passed taxes on pass-through entities in direct response to the TCGA. And this is how the rigmarole works. The state taxes the pass-through entity, and I'm going to use that here as shorthand for partnerships, LLCs, taxes, partnerships, and S-corps. So the state taxes the pass-through entity And then the pass-through entity then deducts those taxes in determining its income. And this tax, at least the states hoped, would be treated as being related to trade or business income and not subject to the $10,000 cap. So are you with me on that? Well, that solves the federal cap problem. But there's one other part to this regime that states throw in to prevent double taxation. The owner of the pass-through entity is able to either deduct from its distributed share of income the portion of that income that was taxed down at the pass-through entity level, or in some states the owner gets a credit for what the pass-through entity paid. There's some variation on this theme, 
but it's all meant to keep a single layer of tax and to keep that that layer of tax incidence down at the partnership level. I hope that makes sense. I know it's a little bit convoluted. Of all the workarounds out there, I think most felt that this was the one that was most likely to work. But obviously, the states and taxpayers have been a little nervous. That is why only Connecticut, Wisconsin, Maryland, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Rhode Island, and New Jersey have passed one of these pass-through tax regimes to get around the $10,000 cap. Well, last week, big news. The IRS issued Notice 2020-75, and in that notice, it basically said that these pass-through entity tax regimes work. The notice says that proposed regulations will be coming out, and it basically laid out what the IRS expects they will say. So let's walk through them as they're laid out in the notice. First, the IRS said that the proposed regs will, and I'm quoting here, clarify that state and local taxes imposed on and paid by a partnership or S-corporation on its income are allowed as a deduction by the partnership or S-corporation in computing its non-separately stated taxable income or loss for the taxable year of payment. And that's the crux of it, really, right there in the first paragraph. And they even quoted congressional intent as the basis for taking this position. Now, lest there be any question why the notice is coming out, the IRS just came right out and said that they're aware of the seven states that have enacted pass-through entity workaround regimes and that they want to provide clarity on how they will be treated. The notice uses a few defined terms. You know us lawyers, we love to use defined terms, don't we? The first is specified income tax payment, and the second is domestic jurisdiction. A domestic jurisdiction is basically a state or local government, including the District of Columbia. A specified income tax payment basically means tax paid by a pass-through entity to a domestic jurisdiction to satisfy a tax that's imposed on the pass-through entity. A pass-through entity can deduct this from its non-separately stated income, so as opposed to making it a separately stated deduction that doesn't change the pass-through entity's income or loss and just flows up to the owners. This means that the entity-level tax effectively reduces the owner's distributive share of income, and as a result, the owner gets the economic benefit of state and local taxes imposed on that income, even if it goes over $10,000. The notice goes on to say that the tax has to be, and here's another quote, a direct imposition of income tax by the domestic jurisdiction on the pass-through entity. But, and here is the key language, without regard to whether the imposition of liability for the income tax is the result of an election by the entity, or whether the partners or shareholders receive a partial or full deduction, exclusion, credit, or other tax benefit that is based on their share of the amount paid by the pass-through entity to satisfy its income tax liability under the domestic jurisdiction's tax laws. So that was a mouthful there, but basically what they're saying is 
the pass-through entity gets the deduction. It doesn't matter if the pass-through entity can elect into being taxed, and it doesn't matter whether the owners get some sort of offsetting deduction or credit to keep the single layer of tax. So that sounds a lot like our seven pass-through entity workaround states. The pass-through entity can elect to be taxed, and keep in mind that six of the seven are in fact elective. I think it just Connecticut's the only one that's mandatory. And the fact that the owner gets a credit exclusion or deduction to lower their individual tax just doesn't matter. The tax remains deductible by the pass-through entity. In fact, the notice goes so far as to say that the specified income tax payment does not count against the individual owner's $10,000 cap. So really no ambiguity there. Some of you may be asking about effective dates and thinking about past year returns, because a lot of water has gone under the bridge since the TCGA came out. Well, the notice says that it applies to all specified income tax payments made after November 9th, 2020. And, importantly, specified income tax payments that were made after 2017 when the TCGA went to effect for taxes that were in effect before November 9th of 2020. So, nothing but good news here, right? Well, not so fast. This could end up being a big problem for folks who reside in one state, we'll call that state A, and own a pass-through entity interest with a pass-through entity that has a lot of tax in another state, and we'll call that state B. You see, without a pass-through entity workaround, that person would be subject to tax in state A on all of its income, even the income of the pass-through entity that gets distributed up. That's just what resident states get to do. And it would be subject to tax in state B on its distributive share of income sourced to state B. But to avoid double taxation, state A, that's the resident state, would typically give a credit for the taxes that had been paid to state B. So all is well, for the most part, no double taxation. But the risk with the pass-through entity regimes is that state A would tell the owner, hey, sure, your pass-through entity paid tax to state B, but you didn't pay any state any tax to state B. You got a credit or deduction that kept the tax purely at the pass-through entity level. So no credit for you. That means that the taxpayer gets say, a $0.36 cents on the dollar federal tax benefit, but economically increases their state tax by a dollar. Now, I'm no math expert, but that sounds like a loser to me. Another issue goes to the timing of this notice. I'm not talking about the effective date, but when it actually came out. Don't you think it's pretty curious that it came out just one week after the election? Though, Word on the street is that Treasury was given orders to get all of the TCGA guidance out by the end of the year, and that very well might be true, I just don't know. But think about the position that this notice puts the Biden administration in, assuming that you know everything goes as it seems to be going and he is the next president. By the time the administration gets around to reversing this, and that's assuming that they want to pull the guidance, well, by then, you're going to have a bunch of folks who have relied on it, and maybe even a few states that have enacted new pass-through entity laws based on the notice. 
And that kind of puts the administration in a bit of a political bind, doesn't it? So who knows if that was intentional? Okay, this episode is getting long in the tooth, but I have one more issue that is not getting the press that it should, and that is how this notice affects composite returns. If you've never heard of a composite return before, these are returns where a pass-through entity pays tax on behalf of non-resident partners. Sometimes it is elective as a convenience for the non-residents that have to file a bunch of tax returns. But sometimes it's mandatory to prevent the non-residents from skirting the tax. I think there's a strong argument that these payments made under composite returns might be treated as specified income tax payments. And this argument gets pretty strong when the composite return is mandatory. In other words, the pass-through entity has to file a composite return and is on the hook for the tax reported on that return. If you look at the wording of the notice, it sounds to me like these regimes, without even really intending it, have become pass-through entity workarounds. Of course, in the optional composite return states, it's a little less clear, especially when the election is up to the owners, and not all of them have to be on the composite return. Underlying all of this is the extent to which the composite return tax is effectively a distribution by the pass-through entity to satisfy the non-residence tax liability. There is some federal case law out there that touches on this. Uh, Old Colony, I believe, is probably the most relevant. So I think you have to at least consider this question. One other issue is how the proposed regulations are going to deal with individuals who dump passive investments into pass-through entities to get around the cap. Does this work? Or does the pass-through entity have to be in a trader business? Would that qualify as a trader business? I don't know the answers to those questions, so we'll have to think about that a little bit and see how Treasury reacts. In the meantime, keep your eye on the state legislatures. Now that they have the IRS blessing, I am sure that several states that were kind of on the fence may take the plunge into the world of pass-through entity workarounds. This is obviously a very fluid situation, so you need to check back often for updates. And because it's fluid, please don't make any tax decisions based on today's podcast. I just want you to be aware of what's going on out there. I'll be back next Monday with a roundup of state and local tax ballot initiatives. Should be interesting. Until then, have yourselves a great week. The State Tax Show podcast is produced by Baker and Hostetler, LLP, and is for informational purposes only. It is intended to inform our clients and other friends of the firm about current legal developments of general interest. Issues discussed should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners should not act upon the information contained in this podcast without professional counsel. In some jurisdictions, this podcast may constitute attorney advertising. The hiring of a lawyer is an important decision that should not be based solely upon advertisements. Please visit BakerLaw.com for more information about our practices and experience.